Thank you for those songs. Really uh, paints a good good picture of the glory of the God that we come to worship. And uh, going to start the meeting with a quiz. I know you all like being tested. And uh, lucky for you, it's a multiple choice. Multiple choice. But we'll go ahead and read the passage first. We'll read the passage. And when James, we're almost done with the epistle. This will be uh, the second to last message. We have one more left after this one. And uh, we've, uh, Sam, uh, actually I guess uh, Don spoke last time on uh, verse 12. So we have, starting at verse 13, James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. All right, here's the multiple uh, choice uh, test. I can't uh, see it very well from here, so I'll step forward. Should have put it in my notes. Did we? Do we have that, Jake? All right. Okay. So, uh, what is more powerful? What is more powerful? And you have four options there. A, a nuclear bomb. A nuclear bomb. Okay. B, a nuclear power plant. So power plants, they make power. That's how we uh, light our houses. A uh, nuclear power plant is one of the types of power plants that can make electricity, and it uses uh, nuclear fuel, the same kind of material that can go in a bomb, but obviously released over a slower uh, period of time. So it's not exploding. Uh, C, option C is a hurricane. A hurricane. And then option D, a man on his knees. Okay, so how many people vote for A? No takers? All right. How about B? All right. You guys are too clever for me. How about C? Option C. Who goes for option C? All right. How about option D? All right. So... Clearly, I don't need to preach this sermon, but because we have another 40 minutes, I'll, I'll try to entertain you the best I can. Um, so, we will look at the man on his knees, the man on his knees, prayer, that's indeed the most powerful, not because of the man himself, but because of the God he is praying for. I had a couple of verses about that, or quotes about that. One was from a Mary Queen of Scots. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox. 
more than all the assembled armies of Europe. He was more afraid of a man on his knees than all the armies of Europe. And uh, J.A. Wallace wrote this hymn, that there is a power which man can wield when mortal aid is vain, that I, that arm, that love to reach, that listening ear to gain. That power is prayer which soars on high through Jesus to the throne and moves the hand that moves the world to bring salvation down. That's why prayer is so powerful, because it moves the hand that moves the world. So we'll look at uh, three aspects of prayer here. The first one will be uh, who, I'm sorry, when do you need to pray? Second will be who do you need to pray for you? And the third is what are the secrets for effective prayer? So the first one, when do we need to do it? Well, James is telling us in the first verse, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So when you're suffering, you should pray. Now, we don't often like to suffer, and uh, yet we're in a world where suffering is very common, and we believe it is in the sovereign will of God that they allow suffering to come upon his people. I've shared it before, but uh, when we were pregnant with our first child, we got a phone call from the doctor, and the doctor said, the child you're pregnant with has some serious problems. And that was probably led to some of the most intense suffering, emotional, obviously. I had nothing wrong with me physically. But emotionally, it was a very trying time for me and my wife. And yet, it was during that period that God drew us to himself. And I could say that I was closer to God at that time because of the suffering than I was for years before that. And, uh, and that's obviously God's purpose. He, he separates us from the things of the world. I was, at the time... Uh, very uh, stressed about buying a house. And I know that's something that, you know, some people today might be. I was very distracted. I wanted to buy a house. If you remember that time, that was uh, around uh, the early 2000s, and the house prices were just doing this. And, you know, I was, I need to somehow get into this market. And I uh, couldn't find anything that fit with what I wanted and something I could afford. And it was a great distraction to me. When this came into my life, all of that was put away. I didn't care about buying a house. I just cared about having a healthy child. And I drew near to God because of it. And that's why God allows suffering to a life. It separates us from the distractions of ordinary life. There's all these things we try to grasp in this world. And the Lord sends suffering and like, we let go of all of that. And we want Him. And uh, we sing this uh, song. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So when we're suffering, we are to draw to him. We have a verse in Philippians 7, 6, says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When should we pray? When we suffer. When suffering comes into our life, we should draw near to God. Now, is that the only time we should pray? 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. So if you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, you should sing songs. All right. Now, I think it's kind of a little bit of a trick here, because if you ever went to the book of Psalms and tried to sing it, you'll find you're praying. Because the Psalms are all praise songs to God. They just direct your heart to praise Him, which is one of the forms of prayers. And so, whether you are suffering because suffering is coming your way, or whether you're cheerful because God is just pouring all His blessings upon you, God wants you to draw near to Him in prayer. The children of Israel uh, had this cycle, if you may remember, we studied it in the book of Judges, where uh, everything was going well, and... uh, Pretty quick, they wandered off the path. And instead of being closely following God, other things were entering into their lives. And so God sent suffering their way. Some foreign power would come in and conquer the land, and that's when they would cry out to God, draw near to God, and God would send them a Savior. And then everything was good again. And then what happened? Well, again, they wander off from the Lord, And the Lord again has to send suffering into their lives to draw them back to him. And the same risks exist in our life. When everything is going my way, that's when I'm most at risk of wandering away from God. When there's suffering, I let go of everything else and I run to the Lord. When everything goes well, that's when I'm most at risk of wandering away. And that's when it would be most profitable (laughs) to be back in the word of God in the book of Psalms, perhaps, singing praise songs to him, drawing near to him through his word. So when should we pray? When we are suffering, when we are cheerful. All right, the second question, who should pray for us? In verse 14 we're told, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So who do we need to pray for us? According to this verse, we need the elders to pray for us. Now it says that it is when we're sick that we are to call the elders of the church to come and pray for us. And this is one of the verses where you'd find people... uh, would have a difficult time interpreting. In fact, uh, before I accepted preaching on this passage, I, I talked to Don and I wanted to clarify that, that my interpretation was fitting with his interpretation of it because there were so many interpretations out there of what this verse is talking about. So this will be lesson 101 on how to interpret a difficult verse. Okay, first, you want to let the Bible interpret itself. Don't find the best Bible teacher in the world and say, all right, you're the best Bible teacher in the world. You tell me what this verse means. You want to find an interpretation that is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Now, one of the ways this verse is interpreted is, well, whenever you're sick, right? You know, call the elders or go to a healing meeting and, and pray. And, uh, and if you have faith, or the person there that is praying for you has faith, you will be healed. Right? That's, that's one interpretation of this passage. Now, the problem with that interpretation is where does it end? 
can I come with any sickness that I have? I, I have a brother that has allergies, and right now he's suffering because of the pollen in the air. Should he call for the elders to come and pray for him so he'll be healed from his allergies? What about someone who's suffering from old age? Right? So, so here's a verse to think about as, as we're looking for, for uh, what the Bible teaches about the subject of, of sickness. Uh, Romans 8, uh, we'll have the verses up. If you want to, you can turn there. Romans 8, uh, verses 22, starting verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we, we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what, for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, I acknowledge these verses can also be difficult to interpret. But it talks about the fact the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You know, sickness and old age and death are all around us. They're part of this creation. And yes, they entered into this creation through the sin of Adam and Eve. But it's a natural part of this entire world. And we're told here that it's not just the world that's suffering, but we also, believers, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I can start enjoying some of the blessings that God has for us, but even I still groan within myself. Now, Many people may have many more reasons to groan than me, but the truth of the matter is I will suffer the same sicknesses that this world has. That's what the Bible says. Now, it says we have a hope. We're eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We have a hope. All this pain and suffering in old age is going away, and we will receive from God a heavenly body that will never get sick or grow old. Do you hope for that? That's the hope we have in the scripture, but we are told that we are saved in this hope, but hope that is sin is not hope. What does it mean? We don't see it right now. I, I don't have that body right now. You don't have that body right now. But we look forward to it. In the meantime, we have to suffer with the rest of this world. Okay, so we can't apply the promise in the book of James to general sicknesses. There has to be something special it's talking about, Okay. So second lesson in uh, interpreting a difficult verse, 101, is look at the context. Is there anything in the context that explains what it is talking about? We can eliminate what it's not talking about by looking at the rest of Scripture. Is there anything in the context that would help us understand what kind of sickness we're talking about? And the hint for that is starts in verse... 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What this is telling me is that this is a sickness that is associated with some sin that I committed. Now, not all sicknesses are connected to any sin that I'm committing. 
It is possible for me to be sick because of sin. And uh, we have that example for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you. Okay, so here's an example with people being sick, right? Many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And by the way, he's talking about the sleep of death. Many weak and sick among you, many sleep or have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. What is this talking about? It's talking about the chastening of God. When I am in sin, God, because of his love for me, will step in and chastise me by perhaps sending sickness or, or could be in other ways. He will let me know I'm, I'm, I'm not walking uh, in his will. I'm not doing what's right. Now, we have a more detailed, detailed explanation of that in... Uh, So I have it right here. Just uh, kind of spread over two pages. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 7. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. This is Hebrews sorry, 12, 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now I have kids, and uh, I may go with my kids to park and let my, my kids play at the park. And it could be that there's a child at the park that will be behaving in an uncomely manner or doing something he shouldn't be doing. You know, and it doesn't bother me. Why? Because he's not my son. But if it's my son that's doing something he shouldn't be doing, that bothers me. Why? Because I love him. And I want him to turn out Right. Right? Because we love our children. We want them to turn out right. And so we're willing to take the extra effort, which is not easy, to try to train them. Now, I'm not going to do it with somebody else's child. I just don't love them enough. You know, to take the time and effort it would take to train that other child. And yet, it's because God loves us that he steps into our lives. And when we're doing something wrong, he comes in and corrects us. Okay, so the next question is, why call the elders? All right, so I've, I've, I've done something wrong. The hand of the Lord is upon me. I'm sick or something else is going wrong. And I know why it is. I know it's because I've done something wrong. Well, the scripture says to call the elders and have them pray over you. Why? Why can't I just pray for myself? And this is something we struggle with because we're so proud and, you know, independent in the American way, self-sufficient. We don't want to need anybody else. God, that's okay. I need God. Nobody else. 
That's not what the scriptures say. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. It's talking about elders. God has set people in our midst, raised them up with the responsibility of watching for our souls. And when something is going on in my life that requires the Lord to step in and do something, God wants them to know because they will have to give an answer for my soul. So if it's the Lord's hand upon me that makes me sick or something of that matter... He wants the elders to know because they need to be involved and to help me out. He, he raised them for that very purpose. Not to hurt us, but to help us. It would be unprofitable for us if they have to give an account for us in Greece. When they, when they stand before God and have to sadly shake their head and they say, Noah, we don't know what happened to Noah. You know, it seemed like he was doing well. And then he just went up. Next time we found him, there was nothing we could do to help him. You don't want them to give an account for you in grief. That would be unprofitable for you. Much better for them to know what's going on in your life and to be able to step in and help you. Who should pray for you? The elders, number one. But then we have, in addition to that, in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Who do I need to pray for me? You. Who do you need to pray for you? Me. (laughs) We have a a prayer meeting here uh, every Wednesday, and I think uh, Sam regularly announces it. And what I want to let you know is it's not limited membership. Okay? You don't you know, have to receive a, a personal invitation. You know, you don't have to qualify. Everybody is invited. And the purpose of that meeting is so that we can pray for one another. And, uh, you know, there could be another reason here for it. it it's, again, it connects confession of sin. And uh, one of the reasons we may need to be confessing our sins to one another would be that we may be sinning against one another. It says in uh, Matthew 5:23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And the thought is, you know, I may want to come before God and offer him something, and could be praying to him, and God is reminding me of something I've done somebody to somebody else that offended them. And what it's telling me to do, what God is telling me to do, he says, you go and be reconciled to your brother first and then come back to me. And again, we don't like that. We want to be able to just come to God directly. Why do I not need to worry about what other people are doing? And uh, the, the reason for this is God loves the church. He wants us to love one another. By this, men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When God sees 
some brokenness in fellowship between two brothers. He says, I don't want to talk to you. You go talk to each other and fix the situation because, before you can come to me and offer a gift to me. God wants us to be a fellowship of loving brothers and sisters. And because of that, we need to pray for one another. And uh, again, the blessing of coming to a Wednesday meeting isn't just that uh, we get to share general prayer requests that everybody prays for. For me, a lot of it is getting together in that smaller group and being able to share something personal, something that I am struggling with, and be able to have my brothers pray for me for those things. And God designed it such that we need other people to pray for us because he wants us to have this close fellowship. So who do we need to pray for us? The elders, one another, pray for us. Obviously, we pray for ourselves as well, but we need those also. Okay, Uh, next. Conditions for effective prayer. So we have this for us. The second half of verse 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I'm going to break it up a little bit. First, I want to think about what, how do we need to pray if we want our prayer to be effective? And the first description of it says, well, it needs to be an effective, fervent prayer. Well, it kind of seems like it's a, like a, I forget, one of those explanation of an explanation that explains itself. But the actual uh, word in the Greek for, uh, for a effective, fervent prayer is energio. Energio or energio. Anybody tell me what it sounds like? Energy, right. And the idea is you're supposed to be praying with energy. Now, uh, of all the passages here, this is the one that's most convicting to me. I don't pray as I ought to. Okay? And I don't pray as much as I need to. So, I'm preaching here, but I'm in the audience too. Okay? So I'm also speaking to myself. Jesus tells us in uh, Matthew 6, verse 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Vain repetitions. Does that sound to you like the way you're praying? Do you often come before the Lord and you just say the same words again and again? And I think we're smart enough, well, not smart enough, let's say it, we've been taught already that we shouldn't just, you know, recite certain prayers. Okay, we're, we're already pretty big on that. But there's still the risk that I come before the Lord and, you know, I, I put my head down and I just start saying the words and saying the words and saying the words, but there's nothing going on inside. The Lord is not interested in that kind of prayer. In Romans 15.30, it says, Paul says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. He wants us to strive in prayer. And uh, I'm ashamed to say, there's just a few times in my life I remember striving. And one of them was when the doctor told us 
that our firstborn was going to be born with serious issues. Uh, that drove me to my knees like nothing else did. Now, that's not necessarily right. That was kind of a selfish prayer when you think about it. I didn't want a child that had different disabilities, which would affect my lifestyle. Right? Not, not the best reason to be driven to your knees, but that's what the Lord wants. He wants us to feel so much the thing we're praying for that it drives us to our knees. And that's where fasting often comes in. And I, again, I'll raise my hand and say, I don't fast enough. I don't remember when's the last time I fasted. But that's the idea behind fasting. It's you're telling God how serious you are about what you're asking for. That's the kind of prayer that is effective. That's number one. Effective energy, energetic prayer. Second condition, we're told here it has to be a righteous man. Now, I mentioned uh, I have a a son named Joey. And uh, a few weeks ago, in uh, one of our night, uh, you know, family routines, I don't know what you've done with your children or doing with your children, but we try to maybe read some Bible story and then have, uh, you know, I will pray after that. Occasionally, I let one of the children pray. And Joey wanted to pray this time, so I said, okay can pray. So he prays and he says something like that, uh, something like, Lord, uh, please give me a remote control a Lightning McQueen monster truck that uh, drives off a ramp and then falls on some cars and squishes them, but then they pop up again. So, alright, <laughs> that's what he wants. And, uh, you know, unfortunately he didn't quite make it through the rest of the evening without getting in trouble himself. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I discipline him. And after I discipline him, I give him an opportunity to pray. And, you know, he prays and says something along the line, I'm sorry that I did X. Can I please still have my toy? <laughs> and uh, what he felt is instinctually what we know to be true and which the Bible teaches If we want God to give us what we ask for, we need to be in good standing with God. And uh, the Bible says, uh, 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Don't expect God to answer your prayers when you're not walking with him. Again, 1 John 3.22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. You want God to answer your prayers? You need to be living in such a way that you're walking with God. Now, we know that you know, if we sin, we can... Come before him, confess us. Nobody here is, is perfect. And yet God expects us to walk with him. We can confess our sins and be made right again. All right, I have two other conditions that are kind of related to the word righteous. Uh, one of them, our prayers need to be consistent with God's will. I can't ask for something that's wrong. You know, I can't come before God, ask for something that, that God doesn't like and expect God to give it to me, right? That's pretty obvious. But uh, we have that in 1 John 5, 14 through 15. 
Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heals us. And if we know that he heals us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Right? So we should ask according to his will. I shouldn't be seeking my own things. Really, I was told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Right? And that should also be the subject of my prayers. It shouldn't be, you know, Lord, I want to be rich. Lord, I want to have this car. Lord, I want... You know, there's no promise that God will give me those things. But if I'm praying for things that God tells me in his word are important to him, I have confidence that I'm asking according to his will. All right, the fourth one is kind of a test, the way I say it. And our prayers, our prayers must be in faith. And we already were told that in verse 15 uh, of, of this chapter in James. It says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. James uh, says it again in chapter 1. He says, advising us when we're in trials, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. God is happy to give us things, right? That, you know, that's God's delight to give us his gifts. But, verse 6, let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Right? So if, if I'm praying without faith, there's something wrong here. Right? Why is it that I'm praying without faith? Well, maybe I'm asking for something God doesn't want to give me. Well, that's a good reason to pray without faith. I have no guarantee God will give it to me. So maybe I need to change my prayer. Okay, or there may be something else going wrong here, uh, that my heart is not fully the Lord's. That's what it suggests in this passage. You know, I'm, you know, I'm asking for something, but that's not really what I want. You know, there's something wrong with me and my relationship with the Lord. If, if, you, can't pray, <clears throat> if you can't pray in prayer, there's something wrong. Don't expect the Lord to answer that. But find out why is it that you're praying without faith. Is it that you don't believe God is big enough to do it? Or are you praying for something that's just not the right thing to pray on? You have no reason to expect God to answer that prayer. Well, change your prayer then. <clears throat> All right. Uh, second part of that verse, the effective prayer, does it really make a difference when we pray? Does it really make a difference? Or will God just do whatever he wants to do? Right? And we can pray along if we want to, or we don't have to pray along if we, if, we, if we don't want to. But God will still do whatever he wants, right? God is good. He'll always do good. God is all-powerful. He can do it. He doesn't need anyone to pray. Will God do it if we don't pray and ask for it? That's the question. And it's a serious one because we don't pray enough. And I know for me, this is the main reason. I think God will do it if I don't pray for it. And that's not true. So just to see that illustrated in real life, we have an example in 1 Kings, sorry, I think it's 2 Kings, chapter 20. We'll see if uh, the guy at the helm had that part right. I apologize if you don't. But 2 Kings, chapter 20, verse 1, does it, does it start with the words, in those days, Hezekiah? No? Yes? 
In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. Hezekiah was one of the kings of Israel. And Isaiah the prophet, and it is the Isaiah the prophet that wrote, that wrote the book of Isaiah. So, this is a major prophet. <coughs> he comes to him. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amutz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. What did God say would happen? You will die and not live. This is the sickness that will lead you to death. Set your house in order. You need to have somebody that will be king after you because you're about to die. And by the way, he didn't have a son then. So it really required him to step out, select who will be king after him so that he can die. That was the instructions of God to him. Then he turned his face toward the wall. This is Hezekiah. And prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. <clears throat> Did Hezekiah accept what God told him was his will? He's praying and asking God to spare his life. What will God do? God said what would happen. Hezekiah prayed that it will not happen. What will God do? And it happened. Before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, he's just walking out of the house after giving those news to Hezekiah, that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return, turn around. And tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. The Lord added 15 years to his life. The will of God is very clear. Hezekiah prays for the opposite. The Lord turns Isaiah around to go and tell him, okay, we'll do this instead. God answers prayers. Jesus said this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Specific promises. John 14, 13, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There is an if. You have to ask if you want him to do it. And the amazing thing here, he connects his glory to it. When you are asking for something in the name of Jesus, Jesus says, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 16, 23. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked Nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
your joy and my joy depends upon us coming to God and asking for things. He will not give them to us if we don't. James 4.2 says, You have not because you ask not. Finally, we're given the example of Elijah in this passage. And it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. How much power does it take to change the weather of the land for three years and six months? So I did a little bit of research. I don't know if you remember, I asked you at the beginning, what's more powerful? And we had a nuclear bomb, we had a nuclear power plant, we had a hurricane. And uh, so I did some research, and uh, according to the research I've done, the average hurricane has so much energy that it would take 200 of the world's energy production to power it. If somehow mankind was to generate a hurricane, we would need 200 times more the capacity of the total power of the world to generate electricity or power in order to power one hurricane. For three years and six months, no rain, because one man prayed. If you are trying to compare it to the power of a nuclear bomb, using similar calculation, you would have to detonate every 20 minutes a 10 megaton nuclear bomb to power one of these things. One man prayed. Three years, six months, no rain. He prays again, rain comes. How much power does that take? Now, James wants us to understand that it's not Elijah's power, right, that did this. And that's why he says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Okay? But he was trying to say he's no better than you or me. He is the same, made of the same flesh. And in fact, at the end of this period, after he prays for three years and six months, uh, for no rain, there's no rain, he prays again and he trains. At the end of that time, he comes to God and says, Lord, take my life because I am no better than my father's. So that was Elijah's own recognition. He wasn't any better than the rest of us. And yet he prayed. Now, the key, in my mind, to Elijah's prayer, and what might separate him from us, was that his heart was in the things of God. And I don't know about you and me, but lately, I haven't been praying for no rain. I've been praying for rain. Why? Because there's a drought, right? It's actually significantly improved recently, but until recently, it was the worst drought in California's history. And I was looking at the hills, and they were bare, they were brown. And in my heart, I was sad. You know, I like life. <laughs> I like the green hills. They were dead. And yet Elijah prayed for three years and six months for no rain. How do you think the land looked at the end of those three years and six months? Why did he pray a prayer like that? Well, it was because God's people have left him. 
Ahab was king. Jezebel was his wife. The worship of Baal was prospering in the land. And and Elijah said, this is terrible. The people must turn back to God. What will it take to turn them back? And he prayed for no rain, no rain, no rain, until the people turned back to God. Because that's what it took. Where is your heart? And where is my heart today? What do we pray for? In Romans 1.9, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul was praying. Now, prayer is one of those invisible works that you don't actually see. In fact, it's that mention in the Old Testament that Elijah prayed for it not to rain. It's invisible. Jesus says, go into your room, close the door. Pray there when nobody sees you and your Father in heaven will hear your prayers. Right? Prayer is invisible. We think about the Apostle Paul and we think about him standing, you know, and, uh, on the, that mountain, the rock in Athens and preaching to people. And uh, we see him doing miracles. We're seeing people being saved, churches being planted. You know, praise God. What was it based on? I'd like to know. Well, it's based on this verse. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul was a praying man. And that's why he had the power. He didn't have the power. God had the power. That's why his ministry was so effective, because he was praying. Oswald J. Smith was a Canadian pastor, author, and mission advocate. He founded the People's Church in Toronto. Over the course of 80 years, he preached more than 12,000 sermons in 80 countries. wrote 35 books, translated into 128 languages, as well as 1,200 poems, of which 100 have been set to music, including one we know, Deeper and Deeper into the Heart of Jesus. That was him. He wrote that. He says this, We read in the biographies of our forefathers who were most successful in winning souls that they prayed for hours in private. The question therefore arises, can we get the same results without following their example? Can we get the same, can people be saved today without us praying for them? If we can, then let us prove to the world that we have found a better way. But if not, then in God's name, let us begin to follow those who through faith and patience obtained the promise. Our forefathers wept and prayed and agonized before the Lord for sinners to be saved and would not rest until they were slain by the sword of the word of God. That was the secret of their mighty success. When things were slack and would not move, they wrestled in prayer till God poured out his spirit upon the people 
and sinners were converted. Samuel Chadwick quotes an unknown person that said, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless he fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. A.T. Pearson was uh, an American pastor. One of the things he's known for was uh, after the death of Charles Spurgeon, he, he was the preacher in Spurgeon. You probably heard about Charles Spurgeon, well-known preacher. So this man basically filled the pulpit for him when, uh, when Charles Spurgeon was sick and later when he died and spoke at the D.L. Moody's conferences, Keswick Conventions, etc. He said this, From the day of Pentecost... There has not been one great spiritual awakening in any land which was not began in a union of prayer. Though only among two or three, only takes sometimes two or three people praying. No such outward, upward movement has continued after such prayer meetings have declined, based on prayer. And he adds this, God has no greater controversy with his people today than this, that with boundless promises to believing prayer, there are so few who would actually give themselves unto intercession. Again, God has no greater controversy with his people today than this, that with boundless promises to believing prayer, there are so few who actually give themselves over to intercession. And I'll close with this. Spurgeon, the person whose pulpit he was feeling, added this. Whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. Meaning if you want something, you have to ask for it. That is the rule of the kingdom. If you may have everything by asking in his name, and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. Let's pray. Father, I uh, confess of myself first, Lord, you know how little I pray. And uh, when I pray with how little power and how little faith, and uh, yet, Lord, uh, we know that we can have nothing except by asking you for it. Lord, Change our hearts to be willing to come to you more. Show us, Lord, that we get nothing unless we ask for it from you. That we might be the believing people you want us to be. That we may have the joy that you want us to be. And that your Son may be glorified. Or that you may be glorified in your Son. For we ask it in his name. Amen.